Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Marissa Natale and Chris Dorides. Hi, everyone. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mark. Well, I've had a stressful morning. <laughs> yeah, that, let's lost, hear about it. I lost power. Lost power. Apparently, I wasn't paying my bill. Uh, you know, I down here in Florida, and I mail... Uh, being diverted from my home in Pennsylvania down here to Philly, but it's been a, a real nightmare. The uh, post office has been doing a miserable job. I haven't gotten the Florida Power and Light uh, electric bills for now three months, and they turned they just no emails, not no phone calls, no nothing. They turned off the power. They turned off the power, um, and you know I, I went into panic mode. Uh, I uh, Googled. Uh, of course, I lost internet in the house, but I had my phone. I Googled a Florida Power and Light. I get this, uh, you know, email site. I, I call it, and I think it's legit, but they got a lot of information from me. Uh, and uh, now I'm here worried that, oh no, uh, you know, maybe I got scammed. Uh, I probably shouldn't worry about that. Right? How did you know that they shut off your power as opposed to just there being a power outage? Did you think well, the power just went out? Yeah, at first I thought the power just yeah. went out. So then I talked to my neighbor, I called my oh. neighbors and I go, and I'm thinking, what's going on? And I wasn't quite sure. And then uh, I called this number and uh, gave them some, they, you know, they asked for my account number. Of course, I don't have my account number. I, who would have their account number? And then Somebody I gave that gets them, their bill. Exactly. Ooh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's where they collected the information, a lot of information from me. And I'm thinking, I mean, do I really want to give him that information? Should I give him that information? Uh, but then, uh, you know, they were able to, I, I'm sure it's legit. I'm sure it's legit because they, you know, they, uh, it just felt. Then your power <laughs> came on. So that, that's, well, that that's not, that's not proof positive because then I had my wife call through the other, another line. You know, if you go down the Google searches, the first one is the one I called, go down a couple more. There's another Florida power line. She called that and that, you know, you went through the phone buttons and pushing yeah. things, and and I think that might have put the the light back on, the lights back on. <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't, I'm I'm all stressed out. Let's just put it that way. I am stressed out. I got my power back. We can do the podcast, but oh my gosh. So anyway, you need hey, Mark. I got a word for you. Yeah, auto auto pay, auto pay. I, I know. I thought <laughs> I, I I thought I auto paid. I thought I, I really really Chris. I did. I thought I was okay. auto paying. Um, but you know. Or it's it really is this elaborate scam. Someone cut off your it power. It had to be really elaborate, though, right? I don't know, though. Now uh, with the infrastructure, AI, <laughs> you know, it could be it, a cyber uh, attack. Thank you, Chris. Cyber Thank attack. You. you know, oh, I'm really worried. Uh, any advice? Keeping, uh, any advice? You're younger than me. You you know you're more adept at this kind of stuff. Any any advice? No. Auto pay everything. Okay, yeah. but but I'm saying about you know this potential hack. You know this potential. Cyber crime. I would call back Florida Power and Light and verify that the person you spoke to this morning is an employee of <laughs> Florida yeah. Power and Light. Yeah. Okay. All right. I kind of sort of did that, but uh, it's yeah. hard to do. You know, try getting someone on the phone for Florida right. Power and Light. And I had to cut it short because I had this podcast I had to do. So, uh, well, you got anyway. your priorities straight. You know. I got my. Podcast first, bill second. Right? Okay. Okay. Willing Fair to enough. risk identity theft for. Oh, geez. I'm risking identity theft for, for you guys. Yeah. Thank no you. one's more dedicated than I am. 
anyway, okay, so um, we don't have a guest this week, uh, and I thought the way we uh, have this conversation is let's talk about the data that came out this past week, and it was data filled, and we'll do that. I think we'll just have a little bit of fun up front. I need a little bit of relief. We'll play the statistics game just up front. And then we'll turn to, I thought I, we play the game, kind of a game, what's bugging you. You know, I there's a lot of things bugging me in the data. I mean, I look at lots of, you know, pieces of information and data. And, you know, kind of the way I think about it is I look at data and if it doesn't exactly fit into my thinking, then my thinking starts to evolve and change. And I'm getting lots of things out there that are making me a little nervous. Uh, and I want to talk about that and see what's bugging you guys. And then we'll end with, uh, we've got a number of questions from listeners. Uh, I understand around deficits and debt in particular, and that's a good topic to, to end on and we'll call it a podcast. Sound like a good game plan? Perfect. Okay, good. good. All right. So let's, let's start with the game. I, I, I don't, I think it's rare. We ever start with this. Have we ever started a podcast? With the stats game? I don't think Not I don't think I've so. been on, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think we ever have. Okay, this is our first. Okay, let's play the stats game. The game is we each come up with a stat. Um, and uh the the best stat, oh, and the rest of the group tries to figure that out through questions and clues, deductive reasoning. The best stat is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately, although that's getting hard to do, but not so hard we'll never get it. And in this case, let's try to keep the stat to something that came out this week, uh, so we can talk about the, the weekly data. Uh, and with that as a preface, uh, Marissa, you're up. Okay. <clears throat> the stat is minus 1.03 percentage points. Minus 1.03 percentage points. That's so a it's big... a it's a calculation. Right. Does it have anything? I'm just going to. Oh, uh, this... oh, you know. Oh, boy. Oh, what? boy. The spread. The difference between CPI and PCE? It's wow. the different, yeah. It's the difference between wow. the core PCE and core CPI. Oh okay, core, yeah, my yeah. gosh. That was definitive. Wow. That, that, that I very, thought that was going to be hard for you to get. It, for me, I, I don't know how we got it. good one. Yeah. That's, that's damn good. Um, yeah. And what, 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 give me a little bit of your thought process. How'd you get there so fast? It was, it's, uh, well, I don't want to steal your mind. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, it's large. It's yeah. Large. It's, it's large. Uh, yeah, it's a right. very large difference. <laughs> Is that one of those things that's bugging you? That large difference? Not necessarily. Bug it? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a discrepancy. In the, it's one of the many discrepancies in the data at the moment, right? That uh, makes you think about what's, what's the truth? What's the underlying um, direction of inflation here? But I don't want to steal Marissa's thunder, so I'll let. Yeah, her... yeah, yeah. Far away, Marissa. Oh, I think low. you already did, Chris. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It is a large difference. So the core PCE is over a percentage point less on a year-over-year -year basis now than the core CPI. This is the largest difference. There was there were a couple months back in O2 during like the summer of O2, right when inflation really started to take off, where the difference was similar to this. It was about a percentage point, but you have to go back to the financial crisis to get this big of a difference on a consistent basis between the two measures of inflation. Um, I think what this reflects is the much larger weight that the CPI puts on housing, 
in the CPI basket than PCE. So in the uh, CPI consumer price index, housing makes up about a third of the uh, the basket of goods that they're measuring. In the PCE, it's only about 16%. So we're talking about, you know, double the concentration of housing in the CPI versus the PCE. So as we know, the cost of housing is high. It is rising. It's been rising quickly, more quickly than we would like. And so that likely is skewing the CPI higher in terms of measured inflation than the PCE. Yeah, I think... I think and I'm, this is from memory, but the uh, year-over-year growth, and you're talking about is a percentage point in terms of year-over-year growth, core PCE? Yes, in growth, January, okay, year-over-year growth in January, so that's right. Core, core PCE was 2.8, and I guess core CPI is, is 3.8? Yeah, they're both like, like 2.9 and 3.9, basically. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I think if, uh, again, from memory, but I think the year-over-year growth and the cost uh, and the growth in the cost of housing services is about 6%, right? Yes. So take 6%, multiply by 0.15. That's the difference between the 0.3 share and the CPI and the 0.15 share and the core PCE. I think that comes to 0.9, right? Something like that. 0.9, point, right? That would be 6, six times 0.15 is 0.9, I think. So yeah. there you go. That That's the difference, I think, the, the bulk of the difference. Does that sound right? You look perplexed, Marissa. Yeah, but no, that sounds right. Yeah, oh, it sounds right. Okay, that wasn't your that wasn't your perplexed look. No, was, it was uh, my. Yeah. I'm just who that. And I'm yes, concerned. Everyone you know. knows that, Mark. Yeah, yeah look. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was providing some insight. Yeah. Uh, well, give us a little bit more on the core PCE. Give us more context there. Uh, I'm curious uh, uh, in your view on you know what that means in terms of our. Or of the quest to get back to the Federal Reserve's 2% inflation target, which is on the core PCE. Yeah, I mean, as I said, the core PCE is rising 2.8% year over year. That has been pretty steadily coming in um, since early 2023. The change over the month in the core PCE was 0.4% in January, which was large, but we were expecting that, right? We saw a big increase in the CPI. Uh, over the month as well. So it's consistent with that. A lot of the inputs into the way that the BEA measures the PCE is the CPI. So they shouldn't, in theory, they shouldn't be telling wildly different stories, but the mix of things in, in each basket is a bit different in terms of how they weight the different components of inflation. So on you know core PCE 2.8, we're certainly, as you would say, Mark, in spitting distance right of the feds um the feds target here we're we're firmly under 3% and heading lower it seems i mean january i think is was will prove to be an outlier in terms of the uptick in inflation over the month so we we should see things uh move lower here um part of the uptick over the month in the pce was uh services inflation Housing did have a larger uptick. So measured housing and utilities costs rose 0.6%. That was up from 0.4% in December. So we do see housing housing price growth strong in the PCE as well. Again, it's just how much the BEA weights housing versus how much the BLS weights housing in the CPI. So um, 
you know, I don't think it changes. This doesn't, for me, at least change the inflation outlook picture at all. It's consistent with what we saw in the CPI. It's not going to be linear. We've been saying that for a long time. You're going to have months where this accelerates, decelerates back and forth. But um, we're clearly on a downward trajectory here in terms of inflation. I got a bit distracted. Tra- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say downward trajectory, but do you think it's more stubborn now than what you were thinking a month or two ago? Or? Well, I mean, we ta- I think last podcast, right, we spent a lot of time talking about housing inflation because we had gotten the CPI report. And that certainly has been more stubborn than I think any of us thought. And a lot of that is the way that the government imputes owner's equivalent rent using market rents to impute that. So, yeah, I mean, it's not coming in as quickly as I would have thought or would have liked, but it does seem like it it will happen. It's just not happening as quickly as, as we thought. And I think the Fed knows this, right? So the Fed knows the ins and outs of the data, just like probably hopefully better than than we do, right? They're making monetary policy decisions based on this data. So they're aware of the lags in the way some of the, these components are measured and are hopefully taking that into account when they're thinking about the trajectory of monetary policy. Yeah, I got a bit distracted and I'm, you may have said this, but uh, uh, just in case you didn't. Uh, so the the year over year core consumer expenditure flater is two, you said 2.9. Okay. Yeah, it's like and 285 it, or something. Yeah. Right? It's 285. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, round it up to 29. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think on a three month annualized basis, it's like 26 or something, 27. And then on a six month annualized basis, it's even lower than that. I think it's like 25. If, if I got the way. Yeah, that sounds right. I didn't know, right. but, but so, that sounds so about right. The way I characterize it is that to <laughs> underlying inflation, abstracting from the vagaries of the data, including the problematic seasonals in January. And they, they're they definitely there. You can mm-hmm. see it last January, we had the same kind of bump up, one month bump up in inflation. So it feels like January is just a difficult month to seasonally uh, adjust. Uh, underlying inflation is about two and a half percent. And the target is two. Mm-hmm. It just feels like we're at two and a half percent pretty solidly. And on top of that, to your point, the growth in the cost of housing services feels like almost by construction that that's going to continue to moderate here going forward. Yeah, fair? Is that yes. Okay. <clears throat> Chris, seem fair to you? Fair. I guess um, any concern about other components? So the PC, I think, puts more weight on the healthcare mm. expenditure than the CPI because it's CPI mm-hmm. is out of pocket versus overall. I didn't take a close look at healthcare. Do you have it any- did accelerate over the month. Slightly, so it went from 0.2% in December to 0.3% in January. I mean, it's been it's been higher. Back in the fall, it was growing at half a percentage point. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is obviously a large component of services spending getting larger, just demographically, right, for much of the country, becoming a larger outlay for many households. So. <clears throat> yeah, that that is something that is a difference between the CPI and the PC too, as well. Um, we are just like in the in the CPI, we're seeing goods prices fall in the PCE, right? So that's across durables and non-durables. So there's still deflation in goods. Um, so this really is coming from the service sector in in both measures of inflation. Great. Good. That was a great statistic. That was a really uh and Chris, boy. 
that was I can't impressive. stump you guys anymore. I, I would never have gotten that. I, I would have been <laughs> here all day. Uh, Chris, you're up. What's your what's your stat? All right. Um, minus zero point three percent. Minus zero point three percent. A government stat. Yep. Came out this week. Yes. Um, construction Is it spending. In the not the uh, n- neither. Neither. N- neither. 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 Is yeah. it in neither. GDP? Nope. Oh, uh, spending well, income. No, there's probably a 0.3 percent somewhere in there. Somewhere no. in there. Yeah, it's not in that um, report on income, spending, inflation. It's not in that report from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. No. No. Uh, it's a government stat though that came out this week, and. and uh, it's put out by the census, if you'd like a, a clue. Oh, the census. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, is it, did we didn't get anything around housing vacancy survey, did we, this week? Was that this week or was that last week? That's not it. Okay. No, I think that was. Yeah, that was last week. Yeah. Um, uh, is it an esoteric series? That come, does it come out every month or does it come out irregularly or every uh, year? Yeah, monthly? It comes out every month, but it's more esoteric. It's- we covered it. Uh, we do cover it on economic. Is it is it construction spending? No. Durable goods. Yes. Oh. oh. Yes. Okay. So. My, was it top line durable goods were down minus point three? Uh, no, they were down a lot more than that. They were down like yeah. six or something. Six point one percent. So core is that capital it's, goods? That's probably X something. Is X, it core X, capital goods? X transportation. X, X transportation. Oh. Got it. Oh, okay. You got it. Okay. You got it. So. Okay. Oh, very good. You want to explain? Yeah, I was going to choose the 6.1% because it's a big, big number, big, big number, big miss. But um, we can explain most of that by the uh, Boeing uh, aircraft orders, right? So those are volatile, they vary month to month. So we, looking at excluding transportation is a little bit more stable. And they, uh, they may be the, down more, right? Because of Boeing's max problem. I wonder if that might Yeah, be that's why. That, yeah. Uh, is that why? why? Okay. Yeah. I want to exclude transportation. Okay, six point one percent. That's a big number, yeah. but you know, it might just be some short-term noise. Yeah. But the excluding transportation, that's a bit more meaningful in terms mm-hmm. of manufacturing, and it, that's down, it's consistent perhaps with some some weakness, right? Some mm-hmm. some of the concerns that you mentioned um, earlier that we'll get into. So that's why I want to highlight this one. It does show that manufacturers, you know, on edge here, right? Some weakness uh, overall. Yeah. Right. Okay. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I think we're seeing some weakness, particularly in the um, kind of the initial stages. Uh, it was a primary metal fabrication. These types of manufacturers that could lead to, you know, more weakness uh, down the line um, in coming months. So definitely something to watch. Yeah. Is, is that? I, I tend to look at the non-defense. The uh, core. The core uh, was yep. that, what was that? Do you know that was up 0.1 percent? So, non defense capital goods, excluding capital aircraft. goods, right? Yeah, 0.1, which okay, that's positive, but still right. it's uh flat, kind of weak, and that's on a nominal basis. That you know, presumably, I bet there's some inflation there too. So, on a real basis, yeah, it's even, even worse, no. right? Right? Well, in terms of how that. Uh, translates into GDP, which is investment spending. It, it, this is a key window, uh, a window right. into investment spending. I think the key is uh, shipments, isn't it? I believe it's shipments. 
uh, do you know what they did during the month? So shipments of non-defense capital goods, ex-transportation is kind of the best measure for investment spending that goes into GDP. Yeah. So that was up 0.8%. So 0.8%. Okay. Well, so that, that might indicate- for now. Yeah. yeah for, right. Orders lead- um, shipments. And so you're saying the orders are soft. Shipments may be good. Okay. Okay. Now, exactly. but, uh, but uh, we've got this weakness that's dead ahead. Yeah. If we're looking ahead, yeah. skating to where the puck will be. And, uh, yeah. Right. Got to look at right. the, the orders. So. Right. And actually manufacturing in general just feels still flattish. I mean, we got I, the uh, purchasing manager survey this morning. This is a Friday. Yeah. March one. And I think it, it, it's well below 50, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, which is 16th, the threshold. 16th consecutive month, I believe. So, it's right. So, manufacturers are struggling. I guess that's one of those glass half full, glass empty kind of things, though, right? It's, it's glass half empty because manufacturing is weak, but it's glass half full that it isn't weaker, right? Because historically, when you have a high rate environment, when the Fed's on the warpath, it undermines first the housing market and then the manufacturing sector. So, manufacturing's actually right. held up pretty well in the context of. Those right, those higher rates, I guess. And then to use the others, Andyism, it, yeah. it's kind of according to script, right? If we're trying right. to get that inflation down. <laughs> we, need to, yeah, yeah. we need to get, we need to see the softening. So, I think I should have like a Zandy vocabulary. You know, uh, uh, we could document. have like a, a Zandy book of quotes. Zandy book of quotes. Yeah, yeah. I've got a bunch of them, right? Zandyisms. Yeah, you do boatload. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so forth and so on. Uh, okay. That was a good one. Okay. I've got one. <clears throat> yeah. 3.8%. Excuse me. 3. Point, well, I'm going to give you two numbers. 3.8%. And then I'm going to give you the second number, which is related. Uh, it, it's 3.3%. Uh, GDP report? Really? Uh, no. Well, it wasn't a GDP. It could have yeah, it, it wasn't a GDP report, but it, you know it, that it's not. That's not the focus that's of the GDP. The, okay, report. yeah, it's okay. kind of buried in the GDP report. I think somewhere. Okay. Actually, let me say, take that back. It's not in the GDP report. Okay, definitive. <laughs> that helps. I mean, I'm not totally confusing you now. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a hint. It came out in the rafted data the day after when we got you know, income and spending and the PCE deflator, all that data, the data that we get from BEA. Was that the dividend income? Increase? No, but you're, you're barking up. Oh, the right tree. it's the, it's government transfers, right? Oh, it, the, the social security. Yeah. Is it the oh, cost uh, of living adjustment on social security? No, but you're no? in the vicinity. You're that in was the three, five, I think. Right. Yeah. That was three, five. You're in the vicinity. Hmm. Yeah. That those things that you just mentioned affect this number. It's a key number, very important. Got to keep your eye on it every month. We can definitely cover it on uh, on economic view. Is it the? It's not the current quarter. No, this is for January. That's why I say it wasn't in GDP. Yeah, it's yeah. the January value. But it's all this number is also in the GDP number on a quarterly basis. It's in. It's on the income side of the accounts. Oh boy, uh, what else can I? I, I can. I Is can it wages? No. Three point uh, eight percent. You got to tell me when you give, or you want another? Uh, it's a component of income. 
It's not a component of income. Okay. Oh, okay. It's not a component of income, but it's it's, it's based on income. Income is a, a saving rate. The saving rate. Oh, yes, the yeah. saving rate, the personal <laughs> saving rate, 3.8. That's the top line. And then here's the interesting thing. Uh, if you exclude the dividend that Costco paid, Costco paid this enormous dividend in the quarter. Yeah. And if you analyze it, it's even bigger. I think it, I think Scott Hoyt, our uh, analyst here, calculated $80 billion annualized or something like that. Wow. So if you exclude that, which I think is reasonable to do, it's 3.3%. Three, 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 three hmm. And of course, then we had a, a big Social Security bump up in January. That's when right. the cost of living adjustment occurs. And so if you take that out, then I think I didn't do the calculation. You're, I think you're in the twos. You know, That's a pretty low saving rate. Now, it, if you, it was lower briefly back when inflation was raging, when inflation hit the peak and gas prices were at their all-time high in the summer of 2022, saving rates got down into the mid twos, you know, briefly. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, here we are back again. So, you know, it, 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 consumers have some excess saving in the high income households, high net worth households, and they're, and they're drawing that down and that's ca causing the saving rate to come in. And, you know, the other, the other factor is the so-called wealth effect, right? Stock prices are taking off. Housing values are rising. So people are a lot, lot wealthier than they were four years ago uh, when the pandemic hit. And so, you know, you feel wealthier, uh, you tend to save less. You spend more out of current income, especially if you're a high, if a high income household with those assets. And that appears to be what's happening. And, and interestingly enough, uh, what's happened, this the decline in the saving rate and drawdown of excess saving here in the United States. Again, the excess saving is the extra saving we did during the pandemic. Particularly about high income, high middle income households because they couldn't spend the money uh, they were sheltering in place. And there's still a lot of cash sitting in people's deposits. A lot of debate around this, but by our calculation, there's still you know plenty of excess saving out there and they're drawing that down. And the reason, very different here, uh, behavior here in the United States than overseas and uh, other parts of the world, if you go, you know, Europe, Canada, you know, Australia, China, wherever you go, consumers did build up excess saving because they couldn't spend. But they're not spending that excess saving down now. Uh, the American consumer is very different in their behavior. They're willing to draw or draw down those excess saving uh, to supplement their income. And uh, I think the reason is uh, the wealth effect. Uh, you know, share share ownership is uh, equity holdings are much broader based here. Uh, housing wealth is, is is deeper here, and and people are just and also I guess the other the other factor is American consumers just feel I think. Um, uh, less nervous, worried, uh, uh, cautious. I mean, you go to China, they got, because of the very vexed way they handled COVID and kept it locked down for so long, people are really nervous about uh, you know something happening. And so they're very cautious. Precautionary saving is a lot higher, but not so here in the United States. And that's allowed the American consumer to kind of power forward. But but having said all of that, that, that that's one of those niggly things that makes me a little bit nervous, right? I mean, you know, Saving rates are pretty low. Are consumers going to continue to do their thing? Uh, I think so, uh, but uh, a bit of nervousness there. So, um, uh, what do you think? That was a pretty good statistic, right? Yeah, that was good. Yeah. I was, was yeah. can't believe it took us that long. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Okay. So, let's, um, oh, before we move on, any other statistic you want to call out during the week? What were you initial claims for unemployment insurance? We always look at that as a bronze. They were up they... a little bit, but they're still really low. Still very low. Yeah. Just north of 200,000. Yeah, Something they're like okay. 215. Right. 
215. Okay. Anything else out there uh, in the past <clears throat> week you want to call out? No? Okay. All the right. revision oh. to fourth quarter GDP was negligible. Yeah. Right. Okay. University of Michigan was up. Uh, although, was it, I think, I think it was in February, it was, I mean, wasn't it revised? Oh, well no, I'm sorry. It? it was down. Down. Right. Down. It no, down. it was down. Yeah. Right. You have this problem with pluses and minuses. Have oh. you noticed this? She, I'm, okay. I <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, I just. We all have our problems. Uh, <laughs> like I don't pay my bills on time. You know. Right, right. That's a big problem. At least I have power. Yeah, at least you have power. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's turn to part two of the conversation. And that is, um, what's bugging you? Uh, you know, the kind of the catalyst for this is everyone out there, you know, the kind of the general consensus view now is, okay, no recession, everything is fine. It just feels like most everyone's bought into this kind of the soft landing scenario for the economy. Um, and, you know, once that happens, I start to get very nervous. I, I was, I, I don't know if I said this last week on the podcast, but in, in my speaking engagements, I often ask the audience what's bothering them. Cause I want to kind of collect uh, things that they're, that they're worried about and I should focus on in my, in my uh, talk. And I'm finding that people are coming invariably coming up with geopolitical risk at the top mm. of the list of concerns. You, you often say that Marissa, you know, if I asked you that geopolitical concern and I, I actually, when I hear that, I go, Oh, they can't think of anything else. Generally you only say geopolitical because you, you can't think of something else that's more pressing. So that may be even, you know, another reason for some optimism, but, but nonetheless, there's there's just, just general angst out there that uh, you know there, there, the people are expressing, but I, I and I'm getting a little nervous uh, because of the general optimism. Uh, but so why don't we go around the the group and let me and we'll do this a, a couple, maybe one or two times depending on the time this takes. Let me ask you what is what's bugging you and you can't say geopolitical risk. You can't say that. It's got to be specific. You know something very specific. Some data you're watching, something that you're observing, something out there that, you know, is just doesn't quite fit into, you know, your worldview, into the worldview we have of a, an economy that's going to continue to perform well. So does that sound reasonable? Does that make sense? Does that sound yeah. like, okay. Yeah. All right. So let me, this time, let's begin with you, Chris. What's what's the kind of the thing at the top of, of your list of concerns? What's bugging you? So I guess in general, what's bugging me are some of these uh, mixed signals in the, in the data overall. If I have to identify one, it's the difference between um, economic growth me as measured by gross domestic product GDP and gross domestic income, right? So in theory, these are two measures that should tell the same story in terms of uh, economic output. At the moment, GDP remains quite strong, right? We've been talking about that. Uh, you know, it's kind of cause or at the at the root of of some of the optimism here is that we still have this very robust resilient economy but if you look at the other way to calculate things the gdi that's showing a certainly a much weaker growth still positive growth but um certainly not at the not at the same level as what we see with uh, gdp so my fear is that well maybe we're not getting the complete picture maybe the gdp is overstated they're we know there are estimates going in, into that into that measure, and perhaps the econ underlying economy is, while still growing, may not be quite as robust as what we're thinking, and therefore more susceptible to some type of shock. 
Yeah, Maybe that'd be Chris, what do you think? It might be helpful to explain the difference between GDP and GDI. What could explain that those differences? Yeah, so just uh, at a kind of a simple level, the uh, GDP is more of an, uh, so it, both concepts are trying to measure the output of the economy. The GDP is uh, going about this task by looking at uh, expenditures, right? So we look at consumption and what's what's been spent in consumption, investment, government services, net exports, sum that all together. Obviously, it's a we have this large, complex economy, so there are some estimates that go on in in that uh, in those calculations. Um, but uh, that's the that's the process. The idea is to just sum up all these expenditures, collect data, and sum them up. The other thought, other way to approach this problem is to look at the income side of the uh, economy, right? Someone's expenditure, someone else's income, and so we we can try to measure economic output by tallying up all these sources of income uh, that we see throughout the economy. Right? Again, in theory and over the long term, these two measures should be equivalent, but certainly in the short term, when we're dealing with some estimates, some data that might be lagged or subject to revision, there can be discrepancies. And that's what we're seeing right now. Right now, I, I think it's a particularly large discrepancy mm -hmm. uh, between the two. I, I think that it's as wide as it's ever been or close to. So called right? they call it the statistical BEA, Bureau of mm -hmm. Economic Analysis, calls it statistical discrepancy. And I think it's uh, if it's not the largest it's ever been, it's about it's pretty damn close. It's close. Yeah, yeah it's very close. Uh, and we got Q for GDP, GDP, we haven't gotten Q4 GDI yet. That's right. And we get that next month because it's lagged one month. Yes. And so that'd be very interesting. So GDP in the fourth quarter was 3.2%. I think that's, that's what, right. what it was revised to. And we'll wait and see what GDI is. And, and what you're saying is that in the last year or so, maybe even longer, GDI has been growing very much weak. more weakly. It's much weaker than GDP growth. That's right. We even had yeah. some negative, pretty significant yeah. negative prints. Yeah. Uh, and there is uh, some research uh, came out of the Council of Economic Advisors under Obama that said the best measure of how the economy is doing is not GDP by itself or GDI by itself, but the weighted average, the the uh, equally weighted average of the two. Yeah, looking at them both, and that would suggest an economy that's not growing three. Probably not growing one, but probably growing closer to two. Two, yeah. And and that would be consistent with if you know estimates of potential the economy's potential growth, which we've long said has been two percent, and that that all kind of works because the unemployment rate has been stable, right, at just below four percent, and that's consistent with an economy that's growing close to its potential, which is feels like it's closer to two than closer to three, right. So, that tends to make sense. It's interesting. We, you know, we, as you know, and the listeners know, we have this uh, tracking estimate for GDP that for the current quarter that we put together based on all the incoming monthly data that's coming in. And right now that's tracking in the twos. We'll see if that holds up given today's data. I suspect it's going to be revised a little bit lower, but we'll watch that. But we get, we collect, we do a survey of other economists that do tracking estimates. And there's um, one of the survey respondents is this fella. Uh, people won't know him, but he's a great uh, economist, Yuzo Kumusaka. He was one of my first clients, and he he's, he's a uh, you know he was uh, educated at Penn University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. Larry, Larry Klein was his PhD thesis advisor, and his Klein was mine advisor. So I got to know him pretty well, and he puts out this um, you know what he does for a living. He's 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 
he's probably in his seventies now, but he does, he really is into the data and he uh, puts these tracking estimates together. And unlike what we do and others do, they, he does a, the tracking estimate for GDP and GDI. So mm-hmm. he's tracking GDI. He has an estimate for GDI and GDP. His tracking estimate for Q1 G, uh, 2024 GDP is kind of sort of like ours, you know, around 2%, maybe a little higher, but GDI, and this was before yesterday's numbers, negative, another negative quarter. Mm. Uh, and if you take the average of the two, it's closer to zero, uh, closer to zero in the in the first quarter of this year. So I don't know. I agree with you. I think that's a really good one. That's a really good one to watch. Uh, I think that's not, that's a matter of some concern. Now, the one thing I will say is uh, all this data gets revised, yeah. right? Often these discrepancies in the data are just measurement issues. And I know that there are some measurement issues issues here that probably explain some of the discrepancy. And there will be some revisions to the underlying income data that, and that generally income gets revised up, not always, but generally. So I think, you know, we'll see some resolution to this, but I think there is, there's, there's noise here, but I think there's some real signal here too. And good reason for some nervousness. That's a really good one. Good one. Um, Marissa, what's bugging you? It's hard to pick one thing, isn't it? It's bleak out there. Um, oh, geez. Wow. Yeah, wow. Right, right down the hole. <laughs> no, right no, it's bunker. not bleak. It's not bleak. Every, everyone's happy. The economy's doing well. Uh, no? Even you are optimistic, right? In a, in a, in a, I am, yeah. In a broad sense. Okay. All right. Yeah, in, in I that, am. So we're saying... We're, we're generally optimistic. The economy's doing okay, performing well. We avoided recession. We're growing. Everything seems to be okay. But there are things that are bugging us. And and I, so let me ask you again, what's bugging you? <laughs> what's not? What's um, not? Okay. Uh, so I can't say geo, geopolitical risk. So I'm going to make no, it a little more nuanced. You cannot say that. that okay. That's, that's amorphous thing that I don't know what that means. Yeah. All right. So I would say that there are several large economies around the globe that are not doing very well. Mm. And some of these economies are our largest trading partners. We've talked before about China, right? Um, growth slow has been slow by Chinese standards. It is now in deflation. Chinese consumers aren't spending, the real estate market's in turmoil, they're not traveling, they're not coming abroad to go to school. The Japanese economy is very close to recession. I mean, it's you know technically in recession, it's had two quarters of negative growth. We got data on Canada this week. Canadian economy is barely staying out of recession. Bank of Canada hasn't started cutting rates yet, which is a little concerning, right? Um, we, we can talk about the, I'm sure we will talk about the the Fed here uh, waiting to cut rates and whether that's wise, but same could be said there as well, because the economy looks weak, investment is weak, job market isn't it's kind of teetering. So I look around the world and I see parts of Europe too. I mean, Germany's economy has been sort of um, iffy as well. So when I look around the world, I see a lot of weakness in very, very large economies that could and will eventually have implications for the US um, the US economy, right? These are some of our biggest trading partners. So if they're not going to buy our goods, uh, this could this could end up affecting our rate of growth as well. That's a great point. That is a great point. Okay. So I'm um, Kind of in my mind's eye, the U.S. is the largest economy on the planet. 
in 20%, 25% of global GDP. Uh, we're doing okay. The next largest is China. They're they're not in recession, I don't no. think, but they're struggling to maintain their growth rates. Uh, and then you go down. The next is is it Japan? I'm I'm speaking from memory, but I think, I think it's Japan. yes, I think it is. Yeah, I think J- it's yep. Japan is kind of struggling too. It's not. Mm-hmm. There's a you know Japan's always hovering around zero right. growth around zero. So a negative number doesn't necessarily mean rece- so-called recession because there's the underlying potential growth is you know near zero. Uh, and then Germany, they're sucking wind, uh, right? I think they're the next largest economy, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe it's India. I guess India is the one lar- You mentioned Canada, the UK, they're all weak. I guess India, Australia, New Zealand are doing okay, but those are much smaller economies. That's a really wonderful point. Really good point. You know, we put together this business cycle status map every every month, right? Where we have all of our economists that cover a country uh, look at their country and say, where are they in the business cycle? Are they in expansion, recession, at risk of recession? Are they in a recovery? And when you look at this map globally, it's it's at risk, like almost everywhere, right? North America, almost all of Europe, much of Asia is in this at risk of recession category. Now, some of that is just sort of, Having come out of the pandemic, some some economies have not fully recovered from this yet. They're they're still fragile, but nevertheless, when you look across the globe at the data, it's it's kind of teetering in many of these places, and so that that makes me nervous. Yeah, I mean, I guess if these economies are flattish and not in actually contracting, you might make the case that that is a feature, not a bug in the sense that that's one reason why inflation has come in. You mentioned goods yes, prices are right. declining. Yeah. And one reason why goods prices are declining is the dollar is strong and we're seeing uh, in China in particular, outright deflation, I think, mm-hmm. in, in total. And and because the rest of the global economy is kind of on the flattish, softest side, that's taking a little bit of steam out of, out of goods prices and inflation more broadly. So that's a plus, right? Yeah, that is a silver lining of this. Is that it? It's it's helping the inflation picture here, right? And the other link back to us would be through things like oil and commodity prices. Mm-hmm. They're kind of uh, it oils up a little bit. I think it's around eighty bucks a barrel, uh, but you know, still low on, enough to digest. And on trade, the other way it could affect us is through the trade balance if that were to continue to erode but that doesn't that doesn't seem like that's happening it feels like the trade balance is kind of has stabilized so maybe 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 uh, this sounds weird but as long maybe the, the concern here is can global con is can't this can't be the status quo right you know no. either these economies improve or they, they're going to go down right down with the uh, down the, mm-hmm. the into the into a black hole and that's the concern but if it's like in the current context with inflation as a concern, if it's just kind of flattish, that that's that may not be too bad. Yeah, that- I think I'm more worried about this in the sort of medium term, right? Yeah. Next few years, once we're beyond, right. once we've gotten inflation to where we want it and we're sort of beyond the cycle and we can firmly say, okay, the economy did the soft landing or however we want to talk about it, then we want to look forward to where's the growth going to come from. We expect 
domestic consumer growth to slow, right? We're expecting a slowdown in the job market and wage growth. Um, we've seen the usage of credit come down a bit from its peak. So if U.S. consumers aren't going to be buying things at the pace they are now, presumably we want some of that growth to come from abroad. And if that's not going to happen, then then we could start to worry about where that growth is going to come from. Right. Okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Let me give you mine. Uh, the labor market, the job market. I know that sounds weird, right? You're saying job market. What's he talking about? The economy's creating on average 250,000 jobs per month. I think that's the three month uh, average monthly job gain. Uh, it, roughly that for all of 2023 that's you know by itself that feels pretty good that's a, that's a lot of jobs i mean i think our estimate for underlying job growth when we're not getting labor force juiced up by immigration and other things is probably closer to 100k at most so that's that's feels pretty good but uh what worries me is uh, the internals of the labor market how you get those 250,000 jobs because hiring is way off uh, if you look at hiring rates, uh, they're now, I think, uh, down to even below what they were pre-pandemic. And I, I was looking quickly and saw that hiring rates are off. Not It's not only in you know, like tech and financial services, which are sectors that we know are soft, but pretty much across the board, hiring has come way in. Uh, hours worked have been cut way back. Uh, and typically, businesses cut hours before they cut people. And I think in the last jobs report, I was curious to see what happens next week when we get the numbers for the month of February. Uh, I think they were consistent with like recessionary territory, you know, where hours yes, get they are. cut to during, yeah, right? Um, temp jobs are, are falling and they've been falling now for 12, 18 months. Now they, that can be lots of different things going on there, but typically businesses cut their temp help before they cut their own employees. And that would be an indication of some softness. Quits are way down. Uh, now, admittedly, that's coming off a period of very high quits. A lot of people were quitting their jobs back two, three years ago. So, you know, maybe it's not surprising we'd see a kind of a lull in quitting as people settle into their new jobs. And I think in generally they like them, but, you know, something to watch. Um, the only thing that kind of is hanging in there, and we alluded to it earlier when we talked about initial claims for unemployment insurance, is layoffs are low. They remain low by historical standards, so uh, that's the that's the one thing that's kind of keeping the labor market together, uh, allowing the uh, net job growth to remain positive, and uh, and frankly, I think to avoid a recession. But uh, when you go to layoffs and you ask, well, why are layoffs so low? Why aren't businesses responding to kind of their weak uh, sales by cutting back uh, on their payrolls? You know, the explanation that that we have, and I think. The, the one that's, that I, that I've heard others uh, expound is kind of the labor hoarding argument that businesses have been through a, a long period, even post uh, pre-pandemic, where they were having a hard time uh, finding workers, and they, they're very fearful that if they start laying off workers, they'll get uh, they'll get uh, uh, trapped uh, and difficult to rehire and and uh, and to uh, find uh, people. They don't want to get in that situation again, so they're just kind of hoarding labor and. Just not laying off, very reluctant to lay off. And, and by the way, this is a phenomena in many other parts of the world as well. But that feels like a very tenuous kind of reasoning for businesses not to lay off. Uh, you know, uh, and you know, one thing that has 
that uh, has that, that may be a catalyst for businesses starting to lay off is profit margins, which rose quite a bit during the uh, pandemic, are now rolling over and starting to come in. And while margins are still very high by historical standards, and I'm, now I'm going to speak as a business person, you you have to defend that margin, even if it's high, right? Because you know your your target uh, that's set by the shareholders of the company or the owners of the company, they're not saying, "Oh, it's okay if your margin comes in." They're saying, "No, you gotta, you gotta keep raising your margin. If your margin starts to fall, the the, the response may be, "Oh, well, I've cut hours, I've cut hiring. What do I do next? Uh, I gotta start laying off workers." And if in that, the other thing I'd point out is, it feels like business. There's a little bit of a herd mentality in the business community, like like in everything else. I mean, right now businesses don't want to lay off, and they're kind of uh, everyone's saying the same thing. But once we start to see one business in an industry start laying off, others could quickly follow and, you know, it's kind of a herd. And if we start seeing layoffs and job grows slow, then, you know, game over where, you know, consumers are going to pack mm-hmm. it in and we're going to go in recession. So it just feels like the, and the metaphor is the, you know, the labor market is the, is the, the, the seat of a stool. And if you look at all the legs under, underpinning the stool and keeping it up, all of them feel pretty creaky except for one. And the question is why it's hard to explain. That makes me nervous. That makes me nervous. Am I, am I being overly like, I'm really worried. I, I, I gave away too much personal information earlier. And <laughs> am I, am I being irrational here? You know, or, or what do you think? Chris? No, I, I think that's, it's a very rational response. I think we're at this point in the business cycle where, you know, we could be on that soft landing path and we're just slowly easing into it. And it's natural that we have this uh, type of pullback and you see some of that weakening, or it could be the start of the downdraft, right? That, you know, this, we don't stop. This is, uh, <laughs> this is just the first leg of the stool uh, to, to go. And maybe there's a, another, you know, set of uh, layoffs that, that are to come. And you're right that if you look at the historic layoff picture, it's never very, it's not gradual. It's very, right. <laughs> very sharp. Either it's yeah. very low and then once it starts, boom, it, it goes up. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I don't think, I think uh, companies don't want to be the the outlier. They don't want it. And it certainly looks bad if you are laying off and nobody else around you is. Um, but once it starts, you know, some of those pent up layoffs may be uh, released uh, in a short period of time, and, it, and that could build on each other. So I think it's a very right. I, you're reasonable more like me. You're, yeah. You know, you're well, <laughs> coming to the dark side. Right? Well, as I no, as I well, as I said, I mean, now that everyone's on over on this side with us, I'm going okay. <laughs> and the Fed's the Fed is not is being very recalcitrant about that. I think I I use that word properly. Recalcitrant about lowering interest rates and the longer they wait, the more nervous I get that, you know, they've kept their foot on the neck of the economy for too long. And, uh, the, the manifest in, in the labor yeah. market with layoffs. Marissa, anything you want to add? Pardon me. I was going to say, I think the fed is a bit trapped at this point. Bit trapped. Well, they right? think they're they a bit trapped. At least, or the messaging would have to be very, very precise. Right. So what, what do you mean by that? Well, it, just in terms, well, even if they read all the, um, if they read through the data, as we've been kind of alluding to that, you know, uh, maybe now is the time that they should start to, yeah. to cut. 
still they have to they have to deal with the fact that the official numbers right the the core pce that we talked about uh, earlier is still well above two percent so how do they message that they can they really use the transitory explanation once again just wait uh, housing is coming in it's easy they just hire me to write the fomc minute <laughs> minutes or meeting uh, well that's story. their mistake i guess yeah come on you just say look we're two and a half percent targets two all the trend lines look good we're looking at the puck down the road we're not looking at the puck here we're going to start lowering rates by the way we're not going to lower them fast we're going to lower them slowly but you know we're going to start lowering rates i i think that, that i don't know that's not that hard to do i don't um okay uh well marissa i want to ask you uh yeah any other theories out there as to why businesses are still reluctant to lay off other than the labor hoarding argument well or, or maybe demand's okay is good enough and they don't really need to lay off they haven't gotten to the point where they actually have to lay off i mean they cut I mean, hours and cut yeah jobs. there's your point about hours right so um i was looking at this with the jobs report last month hours are in recessionary territory i mean aside from April 2020, right? The month after the pandemic started, you have to go back to 09 to see hours, aggregate hours this low, average aggregate hours this low. It's really coming from two industries. It's manufacturing and it's retail where hours have plummeted. Other industries are pretty good, historically speaking, mm. either hours are rising or they're, you know, they're flat essentially. Mm. So it's those two industries that have really, really cut hours. Um, I worry about layoffs. I worry that we're going to miss it. Like Chris said, when it starts, it's just like the floodgates open. So it's very hard to predict or forecast when that's going to happen. And the two measures of layoffs that we have are the JOLTS, Job Opening and Labor Turnover Survey, that gives us layoffs data, We've talked about this. The survey response rate in JOLTS is abysmal now. I mean, it's in the 30s. Mm. So you have to take some of that data with a grain of salt. The other is unemployment insurance benefits, which normally I would say that's a, you know, that's what we should look at, right? But those are those are concurrent. They're not, they're not leading. So you see it, and one one week it's fine, and then the next week it's it's not fine. I also think there's reasons why UI may not be as good of a measure of layoffs as it once was. Mm. Um, good point. Benefits are have become less generous over time as measured against inflation. The replacement rate, you know, the the share of someone's wages that get replaced by UI is low. I mean, it's in the 30s at 40%. So for many workers, especially if they think they could find an, a new job quickly, or if they're getting some sort of separation benefits from their former employer, they may not even bother filing for unemployment insurance. It may ju just not be worth it. Also, states over a lot of states over time have made eligibility for UI more tough. So it's harder to even apply and be eligible to get unemployment insurance benefits. Remember, these are state-run programs. The federal government kicks some money into these funds, but ultimately it's a state-to-state -state decision on how these programs are run. So I think there's, I, I don't think it's as good of a real-time indicator of lay, as, as it once was of layoffs. And we hear about a lot of layoffs in the news, right? Um, but we don't really see it reflected. I mean, I, there's that 
um, Challenger Gray and Christmas layoff Mm -hmm. report that comes out, we did see there was an enormous increase in the last one in layoffs relative to the the previous few months, but we didn't see it in UI claims and we didn't see it in the JOLTS data. So I feel like this is one of those things where I'm increasingly nervous that we're missing something with layoffs. Mm, Okay. Well, I, uh, I, I, when we were preparing for the podcast last night, I was sending some emails around to to say, "Hey, this is what I think we should talk about." I was soliciting, you know, things that people are worried about. So I'm just going to read down the list. I don't think we have time. We're going to go on to the questions, but just to, and of course, you said GDP versus GDI, and then we talked about global economic conditions. You know, some of our major uh, major economies are are struggling. Uh, I mentioned soft, like I said, soft market, uh, soft labor market internals. Uh, and we just talked about that. Here's the rest of the list. Inverted yield curve. It's still inverted, by the way. And that's not a good thing. You know, that's a that's a problem for the financial system. Hey, Fed, yield curve is inverted. That's a problem. Global supply chains and that Suez Canal, Panama Canal, Houthis, uh, lots of things that, to worry about there. Uh, you can see are concerned about the Fed's reticence. Is recalcitrant, is that the right, is that the right word? Am I using that properly? The, the recalcitrant, I think. Someone can have that to up. Google it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, winding down, here's the other thing, winding down of quantitative tightening, uh, liquidity and money markets. I actually worry about that because, you know, uh, they're going to have to end QT at just the right point. They want enough reserves in the system to make things function properly, but they don't want to take too much out. Uh, they, they, they don't want to let too much in. So getting that exactly right might be a, a, a kind of a flashpoint in the financial system. We mentioned China's deflation. Oh, here's the other thing. Oil prices, obviously. Can U.S. frackers continue to increase production if global demand continues to improve and the Saudis and the Russians don't ramp up their production? And they won't, uh, given sanctions and given the desire for higher prices. Last year, we got bailed out because U.S. frackers could ramp it up, but the you know the way they did that was not sustainable. Certainly not uh, not uh, it's not allowing them to increase production going forward. I, I worry about the weak University of Michigan survey and consumer sentiment. You know, maybe it's something more there than I'm anticipating. And this is Chris's uh, uh, perennial bugaboo: credit quality, consumer credit quality. Well, I'm less worried about that, but you know, I. I, I hear you. Um, uh, the affordable housing crisis, and then just when we were starting to really depress each other, Mercer threw into the mix the obvious dysfunction in Washington. <laughs> Although a little less dysfunctional, right? They just um, looks like they're going to avoid a government shutdown, which is yeah, I guess for now, for now, for now, yeah, for now. Anyway, anything else you want to add to that list while we're at it? No, I think it's a pretty good list, right? Pretty exhaustive. Pretty exhaustive. Did you, throw, did you mention a, there's an election? Coming. Exactly. Right. Yeah, we didn't mention that. Yeah. Yeah. Not only here, but uh, you know, everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. And everywhere. that economic weakness you mentioned, Marissa, globally, I, I worry about that having non-economic consequences, right? Ah. Uh, political, political consequences, you mean? Political conflicts, yeah. right? Yeah. Very good point. Very good point. Okay, let's turn to a couple of listener questions, and we'll then we'll call it a podcast. So. Um, um, Marissa, I know you've been collecting those questions. Uh, anything uh, look, look interesting to you? First, the definition of recalcitrant is yeah. having an obstinately uncooperative attitude toward authority or discipline. Okay, there you go. That's a isn't I used it properly? I think right. Yeah. They're the authority, yeah. but they're. <laughs> <laughs> 
they, they ought to, they ought to, they're, they're very obstinate is the right word. Obstinate. Okay. Anyway, uh, what's the question? The, so there's a couple of questions along the lines of the deficit and the national debt in the U.S. So I'm going to paraphrase. So I, I guess a broad question is how do we, we always hear about it from a political point of view when it, when it's discussed, but how do economists think about the deficit, the debt? When do we get worried what do we think should be done about it? When do when when we think it's reaching sort of a critical point? How do we think about tax versus spend? It's it's a broad question, but I think it's a good one. And by the way, that sounds like a podcast to me. Doesn't yeah, it? we should we should get a guest, um, uh, someone in. Uh, I think a few people right off the off the top that we can get here to talk about that. That's a really good one. Um, I've got a view on that. Chris, do you want to expound a little bit and I'll fill in more gaps or do you want me to go first and you fill in the gaps? Or you know, you... Go ahead. Go ahead. You want me to go? Okay. Yeah. All right. So just for context, the nation's publicly traded debt to GDP ratio is 100%, you know, give or take. That's more than double what it was if you go back before the financial crisis. So the financial crisis was very costly. Uh, the pandemic was even more costly, and then we've done tax spending policies that have exacerbated our problems. So we've gone from, I'm making this up, but roughly speaking, 40% debt to GDP before the financial crisis to 100%. Uh, if you uh, uh, take the Congressional Budget Office forecast, CBO is the nonpartisan government agency that does the budgeting for the uh, for the government, federal government. Uh, if there's no change in policy, if we don't change fiscal policy, stat, tax and spending policy, the debt to GDP ratio, and again, I'm making this up, but we'll you know, give you a sense of the magnitude. We'll be at 115, 120% of GDP at 10 years from now, 180% of debt to GDP 30 years from now. And I think that's when their forecast ends, but you can do your own forecast. You know, The thing continues to rise. Uh, the implication is it, at least for a while, when I say a while, I don't know exactly how long, but you know, not a year, probably five, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, if we stick to that, that path and we make no changes, nothing. And by the way, nothing else happens. There's no other pandemic. There's no other war. There's no cl you know, big climate event, whatever it is. Uh, it, it will be a corrosive on the economy. It means that, you know, every year underlying long-term interest rates are going to be a little bit higher than the year before. You know, right now we think the 10-year treasury yield, roughly speaking, should be around 4%, you know, four or four and a quarter, roughly where it is. But, you know, for every percentage point uh, increase in the debt to GDP ratio, by our calculation, and I think it's consistent with CBO estimates, it adds one to two basis points to a long-term interest rate. So do the arithmetic. Say we're at 100% debt to GDP now, 30 years, we're at 180%. That's an 80 percentage point increase. And let's just say it's a point a basis point increase in the 10-year yield for every one percentage point increase in the debt-to-GDP ratio. That means the 10-year yield is going to go from four, around four, to around five, around five, right? Now, here's the other thing. At some point, it, it goes from be, the, the deficits and debt go from being a corrosive on the economy to a clip event, meaning... At some point, investors are going to say, "Hey, what's going on here? Uh, the debt debt's continuing to rise." And by the way, if all, it's it stands to reason if we don't have the political will to change that that forecast, we're doing other stupid things like we're shutting the government down on a regular basis. We're we're have all kinds of brinkmanship over the debt limit increase. We may even breach the debt limit. Give that a shot. 
at some point, and then investors are going to say, uh, you know, uh, I'm out of here. Uh, and adding to that scenario is we're not the only country on the planet that's got this problem. Almost every country in the world has a very high debt to GDP ratio that's rising. There's exceptions. Germany's an exception. Uh, uh, China, China's federal government is an exception, although they got other problems, leverage problems. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, so you're going to have a very significant increase in sovereign debt ar around the world and, you know, uh, increasing demand, uh, uh, putting strains on the ability of, of investors and savers to digest that debt without even higher interest rates. So at some point, we'll probably see some kind of crisis and event that will occur where interest rates spike the economy gets nailed and we go into recession. Here's the final thing I'll say, or maybe I'll say two things. One uh, a little dark, one a little bit hopeful, and then I'll stop. On the dark side, it's almost like we need to have that crisis to generate the political will necessary uh, to make the changes that are necessary. So you know, lawmakers are having a hard, have a hard time connecting the dots in the mind of the electorate. Why do I need to do those cuts? You know, Why can't you give me a tax cut? You know why can't you do those things? You know everything seems fine to me. You know why? What are you doing? Uh, and you need the crisis to say, "Hey, uh, Mr. Voter, Miss Voter, this is why we have to do it." Um, I'm hopeful we don't need to quite get there. Maybe, you know, one in the past, one catalyst for change was when our interest payments on the debt increased to a level that was greater than the amount we were spending on defense. I don't think that's ever happened, but it's, we're getting pretty close to that now. If we're not there. And then, you, then lawmakers can say, does this make sense to anybody? We're, we're shelling out more on interest payments to investors, half of whom are overseas. Some of them are Chinese, by the way, or Middle Eastern or whomever. And uh, and uh, we're, we're, do, we're spending more on that than we are on our own defense. Does that make any sense? Can we make some changes here, please? But I suspect we may have to have something that um, a much deeper crisis for, for us to address these issues. But here's the hopeful thing. Uh, you know, uh, I, if history is a guide, when push comes to shove, and we've been in periods when the de deficits and debt were high and interest payments as a share of, of, of GDP and revenues were higher than they are today, uh, you know, we did find the political will uh, to, uh, to make the changes necessary to ensure that, you know, the deficit and debt didn't become a, a, the kind of problem I just described. So we have shown a, an ability to do it when push comes to shove. Although I guess I can't help myself to end on a dark note, uh, those previous times were in a period when our political system and, and sentiment was much less seemingly much less fractured than it is today. So this is this is a big deal. I, I'll, uh, th 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 this is a podcast, definitely a podcast. But Chris, uh, anything else you want to add there, or anything I said you disagree with? Not not fundamentally. Um, sounds like everybody wants to be uh, Italian. Right? That's the. That's the conclusion, right? All right, we're kind they're of following that. They're 120% debt to GDP, I think, right? What's they're that? Are they 120 or their debt to GDP ratio? Oh, I think it's higher, higher than that. Is it higher than that? 40. Okay. And, and then, of course, it depends how you, what you what you include. But um, Well, let me ask you, uh, here's a question that I think is an interesting question related. If you yeah. go look at Japan. Yeah, that's where I was Japanese debt to GDP is what, 250%? Yeah. So what you know? Why are they able to manage that, and uh, why should that be? Therefore, why should this be a big deal for us? If, if we're it, at one, if we're at a hundred, going to one eighty. Well, that's always the question, right? That the you do see other examples where countries kind of limp along. I, I guess that's the the cost is that they, you know, Japanese economy is just limping along. The central bank basically handles the um, the financial plumbing to ensure that the 
these uh, large debts and deficits don't uh, don't create uh, a lot of uh, economic harm. So I, I think that's a and same same can be said about about Italy, right? Other other countries with large debt to GDP, it's just limiting in in many ways. So I don't there there are some folks who have a very crisis oriented view. Oh, if if the U.S. debt to GDP ratio hits whatever, then everything falls apart. I don't know that that's necessary. I think we would just kind of move along, right? We would kind of put a patch here, a patch there. You know, yeah, certainly 10-year treasury bills would, would uh, experience a higher uh, interest rate, but I don't know that it's a total collapse, right? Mm. I, I don't know that I buy into that narrative mm. at least quite yet, mm -hmm. just given this, this other experience. I guess I'm also colored uh, by my own history. When I was an undergraduate economics student, uh, in the 90s, I was assigned this book called Bankruptcy 1999. I don't know if you remember this, no, but I had to I write a report that. on it. Uh -huh. And the whole, uh, so this was in the early night. The idea was, oh, collapse, calamity coming because of um, you know high uh, high debt payments. And then soon after, the, the budget was balanced and yeah, the debt uh, ratio continued to climb for a while, but it's, you know, we passed 1999, no problem, right? Well, in terms of 2000 that, was the last year we had a surplus. Yeah. So, but in terms of the fiscal situation, you know, yeah. kind of moved on. But I use that as an example of when I said earlier, when we've been pressed, we've figured it out in the 1990s is that is a case in point, right? You go in the early nineties, bond market vigilantes, interest rates were rising, a lot of concern about deficits and debt. That was Gingrich and, uh, and Clinton and Rubin as Treasury Secretary, and they did come together and they did make changes, you know, reforms to the uh, welfare so welfare system, so-called welfare system at the time. They made some other yeah. budgetary changes. And of course, we, we we got fortunate with the tech boom and all the capital gains mm -hmm. uh, that, that generated a lot of revenue. That helped a lot, too. But I, I view that as a time when we actually came to get, you know, there was a lot of brinkmanship. There was a government shutdowns at that point in time. And so yep. forth and so on. And uh, at the, uh, then we thought the, the political system was very fractured. Probably certainly not as much as it is today, but the thinking then, then was it was pretty fractured. And we came together at that point. Yeah. But so I, I think yeah. that's, the, that's the hopeful view. Hopeful um, view. Yep. But I don't yep. know that. Uh, so you're well, saying, I, you're saying, Mark, okay, it's not great. Uh, but relax, we can digest, you know, much higher debt loads or maybe we a, could. Variation, a variation on that theme is we can digest them. It's not good because it's going to be problematic in terms of underlying growth rates. We will have higher interest rates. We're just not going to grow. Uh, we'll be Japanese like to some degree. That's right. I, yeah. I don't, I'm Perhaps I'm hopeful that uh, we'll see some type of political uh, solution come along, but I'm not very optimistic that that will be the case. It's more likely that we'll just, as we've kind of done over the past couple of years here, we go through these, uh, you know, debt ceiling brinkmanship periods, or you know, another government shutdown. We just kind of patch it along, you know, keep going, but uh, making those big. Uh, decisions in terms of the, the the true reforms that would be needed to actually turn the the tide here. I just I don't see that happening. Uh, yeah, yeah. Marissa, anything you want to add on? Yeah, here? I just I uh, one of the other questions is: Do you think that we could ever see a budget surplus again? It just seems 
I mean, it, it could, right? There yeah. could be some big, we talk about big productivity boosts or, you know, some some major shift in the economy, some major innovation, just like the tech boom was in the late 90s, early 2000s. But well, I can construct just, a scenario. I can. Here's yeah. how you do it. It's, it's you, you have to grow 3% per annum, not two. And the way you get three is you get uh, more you get immigration reform and you get a lot more immigrants into the country. The immigrants with skills and talents and wealth and kind of Canadian-like immigration. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe half. Uh, and by the way, more immigrants means higher productivity growth because they start yeah. companies at a higher rate. And then you get a little juice from AI, more, you know, another half point there. You get three. I bet we should do the calculation, but I I, I would think if we go from 2% underlying growth to three, problem solved, be my guess. Unless we create more problems by cutting taxes or you know right. increasing other yeah. spending, we'll or find a way to spend. Yeah. We're going to we find a way to spend that yeah. surplus pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah, I just don't have much faith that 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 we'll do that. Legislators have yeah. the will to put that ahead of partisan politics. I mean, it just looks increasingly bleak on that front. Yeah. I didn't really want to end on a down note. I kind of, you know, I gave us a way to end on a positive note. <laughs> you <laughs> just wouldn't the, take what it. Was the positivity again? Uh, you know, it, it's actually doable. It's doable. It's, it's <laughs> oh, okay. conceivable. Right. It's, it's conceivable. Doable. It's conceivable. We why? I mean, why do we think we need to be boxed in at a two percent rate forever? I mean, that is our forecast, but that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. It doesn't necessarily be the case. Yeah, when I think we, this goes to like talking about. What are the upsides, right? We talk, we always talk about the downside risks, but there could be upside risks now. We've hinted at them in the past, but you you could construct rosier narratives around our baseline outlook. Well, let's uh let's get let's just uh, uh pinky what do we do? Agree. Swear? No, we don't want to kind of sw pinky swear. We're gonna agree that we're gonna have a podcast oh. on this issue and we'll get we'll think about and if listeners got a um recommendations on who they think would be good to have on the podcast to discuss this issue on fiscal deficits and debt uh, all ears, but there are some really good choices out there. So we'll try to do that in the future. Uh, anything else guys, before we call it a podcast? Uh, a, listener, a, a listener suggested that we broadcast what our upcoming topics will be so that questions could be submitted in advance. So next Friday is jobs Friday. So that will be, we'll have Dante, I'm assuming, will be on and we'll yep. be talking about the jobs report for the month of February. Oh, good. Great. Uh, well, well uh, anything, Chris, before we go? Uh, just wondering, uh, given your, uh, yeah. your comments today, have your recession odds uh, shifted at all here? Or no. A little darker? No. no? No. These are just things that are bugging me. Yeah. Okay. 20% probably. A little elevated. The unconditional probability is 15, but I say 20. What about you? Have they changed at all uh sticking with 30 30 these ge remember? these geopolitical risks are really oh, I hate that. <laughs> marissa what's your probability uh, 2025 somewhere in there yeah okay all right uh okay very good well uh thank you dear listener uh and we will talk to you next week take care now <laughs>